Welcome to The Gamble and the Glory, where we hear founders tell the story of growing their companies to become industry leaders within the sports betting, fantasy, and iGaming industry. The Gamble and the Glory is presented by Segev LLP, a full solutions law firm purpose-built for the gaming and betting industry. With decades of experience and a truly global reach, Segev LLP is your go-to expert for legal solutions for all challenges commonly faced by companies from every industry vertical, including payments, blockchain, esports, affiliates, data, and more. If you need help with private equity funding, public markets financing, licensing, intellectual property, mergers and acquisitions, commercial deals, or other business needs, this is your team and it's what they do. Whether you're just getting started or have already scaled to become a stalwart of the industry, discover how Segev LLP can add value to your business and help you achieve your goals. Learn more at www.segev.ca. All right, we are back with episode four of The Gamble and the Glory, where we meet founders that have scaled their companies to become leaders of the real money gaming industry. For the first episode of 2024, I'm delighted to be joined by Pinny from Optimove. And Pinny, you're no stranger to appearing on podcasts, so no pressure, but I am looking to set the bar high for the rest of our guests this year. Thanks so much for joining me today. Just to check in at the starting line, how are you doing here at the start of 2024? Yeah, thanks, Jesse. Doing just fine. You know, uh, we still have a few more days to finish the the year. So, uh, you know, very much uh, excited about Q4 for us. So everybody's super excited in our sales organization. So this is where I'm at right now. A welcomed pause to just kick back and talk about life and, and building companies. 100%. Well, let's just get right into it then. We're going to start on a topic here that I, I think maybe the audience isn't necessarily expecting, but we're releasing this episode almost three months to the date from October 7th, which is unfortunately a date that many will remember for all the wrong reasons. Optimove is a, an Israeli-based company. You're based in Tel Aviv. And, you know, obviously it's been a horrific time for everybody in that side of the world. So I just want to sort of check in here, Penny. And, you know, number one, on the ground for you in Tel Aviv, in Israel right now, what is life like there right now? I mean, I'm obviously in North America. We see what we see on the news, read what we read on the internet. As they say, the first thing to go in the fog of war is truth. So it's hard to know sort of what life is like from this side of the world looking over there. So can you just give us some perspective on, I guess... How are you experiencing things? How are you doing? And, and how is everything, I guess, under horrific circumstances? I appreciate the question. I think it, it's something important that's happening, obviously horrific and very sad for many people on both sides, but at the same time, uh, important to talk about. Yeah, honestly, we went through many, many phases. So I would say like this last three months, it's almost three months. We're missing what, like nine days to get us three months. We, we have been, it feels like three months are encapsulated into like a very dense, experiences. And so everything is, is, you know, every week is like 10 X of everything you typically experience at the beginning. It was a state of shock. It was a state of shame, grief, rage, a lot of emotions at the beginning. And then I think it started to unfold like many questions about identity being Israeli. What does that mean? Being Jewish. What does that mean? Do people really hate us around the world? Do they not? Is it just a select few or is it a lot of, like, there's a lot of thoughts that go through your head. And yeah, look, it, I don't want to, I don't want to be political. Obviously it's not what our audience cares about, but it is of course, very sad. I would say to both peoples, both Israelis and Palestinians, we, there's many, many people in Israel that definitely don't like what's happening to innocent Palestinians. We don't like that that's happening. We hate it. Obviously, we hate what happened to 
to the Israeli people, but it was a very barbaric attack, unfathomable from many angles and aspects of why you would do such a thing, right? Why would you do such a thing for an 85-year-old woman, even if she is from the enemy side or, you know, if six-month-old baby, things like that. But I think today, like everything in life, it comes to some kind of a routine at some point. And so we've had on Tel Aviv, we've had a lot of uh, missile launches. Uh, it kind of like stopped, the frequency went down. I was living in three different Airbnbs in the first month because my apartment doesn't have a safe room. And my wife was, was panicking, right? So we went to like Airbnbs with like a safe room or like a bunker. After a month, we went back to our home. It's hard to tell. I mean, um, from a company perspective, Optimo had, we are a global company. So we had some roughly... 500 employees across the company, but 250 are in Israel. We have a big U.S. office and a big London office. In Tel Aviv, we had 41 employees drafted to reserve duty. So 41 folks all of a sudden in the middle of their lives became soldiers fighting for the country. We were able to sustain through because uh, we have a lot of help from our global offices, from, you know, the people that stayed chipped in, kind of like worked harder to make sure uh, our customers don't feel it. Everything stayed like business continuity, something we kept on providing and we kept on delivering. And we actually have really good results from a business perspective. So we're able to keep it going. But yeah, I'll stop here and let you ask questions. I got like gazillion thoughts going through my head. So uh, I don't know where I'm pulling from. No, I, I appreciate that the comments and, and just sharing that perspective for, again, the audience here is, is, you know, geographically quite removed from all of this, right? I think what I'm curious about as well, just to continue the thread for a moment here before we switch gears, is what kind of leader have, have you had to be through this crisis, right? I mean, you just mentioned that almost sounds like 10% of your, your global staff have been drafted, which is just a very difficult thing to comprehend, right? Like, how have you had to show up and sort of be there for your team and, and, and sort of ensure that continuity from a business perspective that you talked about? So I think it's really interesting. I think when, when you take a system and you put it in a stress mode, right, you can see what it's made of, right? So this is like something that really tests the density you have in your bones. I feel like we, we've always built the business in a healthy manner. You know, the executives are there because they want to be there, right? And uh, we have really strong culture in the company. And there's a lot of aspects that we've always had that all of a sudden when something like this happens, it doesn't have to be that difficult if your foundations are strong. And that's essentially what happened to us. So I don't think I needed to be exceptional leader. I'm just, you know, most, mostly the same way. Israelis are pretty resilient. You know, we grew up in a war situation. We heard the stories from our, I heard lots of stories from my grandparents. My, you know, my grandparents were from Greece and Poland and, and you know, it, it's an immigrant society. There's a lot of things that go way back, but you always heard about it. At least my generation, we never kind of like felt it ourselves. Some level of toughness that's embedded into everybody. At the same time, you know, you just try to, we did what we had to do, multi-communications. The first few days was about communicating very well with our clients, with our employees. Here's what we're doing. Like you can work. The first thing we did, we, we used COVID, right? So we went back into COVID mode very quickly. Everybody's at home. Everybody's working from home. There's no school system, same as COVID, you know? So we just went back to COVID mode instantaneously. I think the first week people were actually at a state of shock that they probably only did the task that they needed to do to keep the lights on, but nobody was working, you know, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to promote this, this new project now with tons of excitement. Like people were like, first week was like shocked. So it was just keep the lights on, but everything COVID mode, 
and we have a pretty good company, strong culture. So we were able to kind of like, I would say, sift through it with relative ease. You know, it's the same startup is full of problems every day, right? That's just another problem. That's a big one, but you know, you deal with it. Awesome. Well, let's switch gears a little bit here, Penny. And, you know, for the benefit of folks listening that might not be familiar with Optimove, it'd be great if we could just spend a, a quick minute here. If you can give a primer on Optimove itself, just to quickly talk about what it does, who it serves, and, and just contextualize maybe the size and stage of the company where it's at today. Optimove is the first customer-led marketing platform. I say the first because we've been at it since 2012. And when we say customer-led marketing platform, it means that like we, we believe that brands should put the customer first in the way that they actually do their CRM marketing, or you can call it personalization marketing, engagement marketing, retention marketing, right? There's many different words, but essentially we help companies focus on the database of their existing customers and make sure that those customers will be worth more. So increase the lifetime value of every customer by using personalization, providing customers with delighting personalized messages, relevant marketing, marketing that resonates well with each and every individual that ultimately makes them choose your brand again and again and again and become more loyal to your brand. That's kind of like the, the overall spiel, I would say. We obviously do it with a lot of data science because we need to get to know the customers in order to send them the right messages. But then we need to have all the technology for kind of like sending them. So it's a lot of data technologies and it's a lot of marketing technologies for sending messages across many, many different channels, right? So we do email, mobile, SMS, WhatsApp, web. We have loads and loads of channels, but the core is the intelligence part, right? Is how you take all the data about, a com about customers of a company and how you decipher behaviors and patterns and find personas and interesting interesting things in the data that would guide the marketer to be much smarter and build programs that will delight the customers. That's kind of like big picture what we do. I started a company from an academic background with, with a PhD, with another PhD, sorry, another person, my partner at the time was a PhD. We, I come from stochastic modeling, a lot of kind of like Markov chains and, and things like, you know, geeky stuff like that started a company like very naive. It was basically like the, it was basically like a mathematical model and nothing else. From a company perspective, we are a roughly 500 strong. We have, as I said, main three offices in the UK, the US and, and Israel. Obviously we're, we're friends of the gaming industry. We have lots and lots and lots of, you know, I would like to say the best and brightest. So every brand that made any kind of a splash in the last seven years ran on Optimum. So every, and I'll say that statement again, because it's the one I'm most proud of. Every brand that made any kind of splash in gaming in the past five or seven years runs at Optimus. So Intain and Bet365 and GG Poker and Stig.com and FanDuel and Kindred is a new edition and Betfred and the cool and small ones and the big and established ones. And it's something that obviously got, you know, happened because we started in Israel and Israel didn't have a ton of e-commerce or retail. It's a small country, did have gaming. And we just wanted to find the people that appreciate the sophistication in the data that we can deliver. And the gaming guys just loved it. But we do, we do brands like Staples and Sephora. Sephora is a, is a very cool addition that we just signed. The entire North American business of Sephora is going to be powered by Optimove. So. Really cool companies like that outside of gaming we work with banks in the UK, we work with Tesco Bank. It's gaming and many others, but uh, gaming is definitely an industry that we, we cherish and we believe that it's kind of like the OG story of Optimus start with gaming. 
from an investor's perspective, we're backed by Summit Partners. That's a U.S. fund based out of Boston. Invested a lot of money into OptiMove, a lot of primary, a lot of secondary. But OptiMove overall is, is a cash flow business, cash flow positive business. We've been, I've been running OptiMove. I started as a bootstrap, ran it. And forever, even I, I took, I had two investors. One was IGP is the one before and, and now Summit. But it's always been running in a profitable fashion. And we've been using the funds to buy companies and, and invest in strategic initiatives. So I'll stop here because uh, I can go on and on and on. Well, and, and, and there's lots of threads for me to pull on there. So you're making my job easy uh, today, Penny. I appreciate that. But no, I, I want to get in the time machine and, and, and go back to 2012 and I guess the origins of Optimove. And I mean, as you just described today, it's a well-oiled machine serving tier one brands within the space and also tier one brands outside of the gaming space. But I guess it's back at the origins, if you can reflect back to that point. I mean, was it a, a conscious business plan you had at the time to take the data science background you and your partner had to develop what is now Optimove or as has it been more of an organic journey where you sort of had a thesis about it all and you thought if you could apply your data science background and technical skills, something interesting might emerge? Or sort of how do you reconcile that, uh, I guess, part of the journey at the earliest stages? That's an amazing question, I think, because they, I think when you're younger, especially young in terms of my, my experience, because when I started opting, I had no job experience. I was in university for many years. I've never worked, right? And it's, it's my first job. So I would say that like, at that time in your life, like your understanding of, uh, even if you, I don't know, even if you've interned in McKinsey, your understanding of building out a business plan and like, I, I don't think that that's the right. Sometimes it can, it can make you to be too conscious and actually disqualify good ideas that you want to do. So usually the way I did it is it was mostly instinct. And the definition of an instinct is really interesting when you think about AI. Instinct is the definition of, of a course of action with zero training. So if you think about, you know, a bird building a net or whatever, a baby that knows how to grab you when they feel kind of like, like they're about to fall, right? That's, you never taught the baby to do that. That's an instinct. So I've had a bunch of instincts that basically guide me through. And a lot of them is around your identity, right? Who do you want to be? What are you attracted to? What does your brain find to be thought provoking? That's where your brain's going to pull you. So for example, I was doing stochastic modeling and operations research, and there's a lot of inventory management and manufacturing and big plants and big warehouses and logistic systems that do all of these. I didn't, I wasn't attracted to that world. I felt like that world is a bit gray and the world of, you know, in my department, those were like data mining, right? So it's like data mining is the one thing that's closed up to computer science. It's like mining data. I felt attracted to that. I don't know why. I didn't have a business plan. I didn't look at trends or where it's going to go. I was like, yeah, if I'm going to do something, it's going to be with data mining. I'm not going to do it. About, I'm not going to build an inventory management system. Please excuse me. I'm not going to do that. So it's going to be data mining. The one thing I've seen that I can go after, and that was like the first decision, right? That's like an example. Mostly like I would say what, what you like to do as a person, what, what attracts you as a person just instincts of what, and obviously, you know, data mining is a part of AI, predictive analytics, like all of that field has become huge. Yeah, super interesting. And another thing I'd be interested to hear you comment on, Penny, staying back in that moment in time is, is I guess, the journey towards product market fit, right? I mean, Optimove now is, again, as I said, a, a very mature, very robust B2B SaaS platform and business, but it wasn't always that way. And then at some point, you sort of took steps towards product market fit. And just wondering if you can sort of reflect back to that time and, and think about that journey 
and and maybe what were some of the the most challenging parts for personally leading Optimum towards product market fit? And I guess the second part to that question is how you knew once you were there and once you had found PMF. Yeah, that was that was very interesting for us. So especially coming out of academia. So when I started, kind of like I I just uh, with, with my partner at the time, we simply we just plotted this predictive model way of modeling customer data. And all we wanted to do is to build our micro segments and to predict the future value of a customer. And like, that's what we did, right? We were like one trick pony. We did only that. And we started showing it to customers and we told them, give us your data. We want to build this model. We did. And it was something that a lot of people found interesting. They found it, you know, thought provoking. Yeah. If you can predict the lifetime value like this, what does this mean? But it was, I remember explaining to my wife, what does a nice to have mean? You don't say in business, there's a must have and there's a nice to have. And I was always, I was always telling her like, hey, I, I'm, I have something that's nice to have. I mean, I don't know if people are going to, you know, keep on paying for this or, or eventually kind of like the process is obviously it's always, it's a continuous process of change management and, and problem solving. So our model was able to accept kind of like different marketing actions and, and optimize and find the best ones. That's why we call OptiMove, right? The best move, like a chess move. So we said to our clients, can you give us, like, what did you do for this customer? Like, what types of campaigns did you send this customer? What types of messages did this customer see? We want to take all of this data into the machine and have the machine optimize it. They're like, yeah, we don't have it. We have it. Uh, some is in Excel. Some is in the email tool. Some of it is, is over there. Some of it is at the call center. And we said, like, there's a thing called, like, if, uh, you know, if the mountain doesn't come to Muhammad, you know, then Muhammad should go to the mountain. So if you're just waiting there, the data to come to you. So we said... Let's build this marketing calendar that they'll be able to set up those just to record what they're doing for each customer. They'll record it in Optimum. When they do, we can go back and feed our beast, right? We can feed that engine that wants to do optimization. Fast forward into the future, that thing that records it, it's much more important than the wanted to get the data. So that's how we became the orchestrator. That's, that's how we became campaign management, or we became the thing that basically records everything you do for all the customers, but not only that sends out the commands, the prescriptions, like, hey, here's a list of customers. They need to get this and this and this. And we connected at the beginning to all of these marketing channels. But till today, our strongest muscle is up being this type of air traffic control. Like think about your entire campaign program as an airport with lots and lots of conflicting, you know, limited resources, conflicting agendas. And you need to, you need air traffic control to maintain and manage that thing to function in the best possible way. So that was the thing that led us to product market fit. A second one was about the industry, which was when we started, I worked with retailers and in Israel and banks and telco companies at the time, telcos were all the rage before the iPhone came. Right. And everybody was, you know, they didn't get it. Like they didn't appreciate the sophistication in the data. Whenever I would show them, you know, a prediction, they would ask me what's the average order value. And, and like very mundane and basic things like that. And then I was walking my dog and I met a friend that he was at the park and my friend was like, he worked at Google and he told me, Pini, did you try internet companies? I was like, what internet companies? Which is now sounds weird to say, but that was, yeah, it's like, like a lot of these companies that they function online and they're all about the data and they really appreciate sophisticated models and it's like, oh, interesting. And that's how I started with the gaming industry, right? I would go, I would knock on the door of like an 888 or a Playtech. Obviously they had me come in for 5,000 meetings and never did anything with me. But some of those people in those meetings liked what they saw. Then they would move to another company, to a smaller gaming company. 
and they will bring us in. So two pivots. One of them is to actually become the orchestrator, not only the nice data stuff. And the second one was to focus on internet companies. And here we are. I want to spend a few minutes here talking a little bit about, you know, just the general state of marketing within the real money gaming industry. And I know, you know, acknowledging Optimove has other verticals outside of gaming, but we will sort of focus our conversation here within the context of gaming. I want to get a bit of a pulse check from you, Penny, on, I guess, the state of marketing within the industry. And, you know, obviously, we started the new year here. Everybody has their plans for 2024 and, and, and their marketing plans. And there's a, there's a mix of different tactics and strategies. I guess just in general terms right now in 2024, what are some of the more interesting tactics that you're bullish on? And then maybe what are some marketing-led tactics you're maybe uh, more bearish on these days? That's a really good question. I, I think that ultimately to me, I'm not, a, I'm not big on trends, right? So if I want to do something, I want to do something that's correct, something that's not trendy, right? Like if you think about content, like something that's evergreen. So to me, what we're doing and what our partners, our customers are doing with us, that's one long continuum that... As time goes by, because technology improves, we improve, our clients improve, we can just deliver more on that primordial vision, right? And the primordial vision is, I want to delight every customer. You give them the right message at the right time via the right channel. It's all super relevant. It's not like, um, it's not batch and blast. It's not spammy. So we're all chasing that same vision, right? The vision is still there. It's been laid out, let's say 20 years ago. Everybody gives the example of your local grocer. You go in and you say, and he's like, yo, Jesse, guess what? I know you're big on, I don't know, lentil. There's a new kind. You may want to check it out, right? And you're like, oh, I just love this guy, Joe. He always thinks about me. When I come in with my kid, it gives him a candy. And you're super happy, right? You love Joe. You're always going to buy. You're always going to buy from him. So we're all chasing that. We're all trying to, to equip brands with the ability to create that very same level of intimacy with their brands. Now, it's very hard, right? It's very hard to do and very hard to accomplish because when you think about this setup, I really like, you know, personalization is difficult. Even I like to, to go into another ancient example like Henry Ford with the manufacturing line of the T model, with the assembly line. So he said like, you can color, you can paint it any color you want as long as it's black, right? So he basically said, hey guys, no fucking personalization. I'm not going to do any, not even the color. You know why? Because I want to focus on actually getting those cars out. And then, you know, many years later, you have, the, you have the complex assembly line and you can get, you know, many different cars with many different wheels and many different, you know, interiors and, and whatever. So it's the same thing with, with TRM marketing operation. To personalize campaign was very, very difficult. You needed some data guys to go into the data and find different personas and different customers. You needed designers to come up with a few different variations of copy. You needed merchandising people to come up with different promotions. So it was very, very difficult and it's getting much, much easier to do at scale, which a technology like Optimove and others, you know, promote and support that. If I'm looking into next year, I think something that I like a lot, something that really takes away a lot of the power of, of this mechanism is if you think about it, to have a campaign produced, you need four or five different professions, or you need the assistance of four or five different departments. You need the data guys to give you the data. Then later they analyze the campaign. You need the studio, you need the campaign manager, you need the marketers, you need, so you go through this, this chain by the end of it, it took you like a month to do something new. You're all gassed out. You're no longer excited. You're not, you're not like 
enthusiastic about the idea you had a month ago and you had four ideas and you only delivered one. And by the end of it, if you really look at what companies do today, they have a few pockets of successful journeys, right? They would have their card abandonment or deposit abandonment journey. They would have a really nice welcome series. They would have a really nice win back series. But how often do they really delight their customers? In many cases, they don't. So it's really hard to maintain those departments from a talent perspective. You know, you got a really good talented team. Two people leave. You need to hire new people. They don't know what the heck you're doing. You teach them all over again. The data team leaves. Then you need to. So most companies do probably a mediocre job at it. I like to think that our best customers do an elite job at it, but, but it's hard. To me, the future is about, do you like basketball, Jesse? For a guy that's six feet tall, I probably should like it more admittedly, but I like it casually, let's say. Casually. So the biggest revolution in basketball, if you think about today versus, let's say, 20, 30 years ago, 20, 30, you have positions, right? So you're a point guard. You have a job. You need to dribble the ball, take it up courts, you know, distribute it, find open people, run the drill. You would say, hey, this is drill number two. Let's run it. Then you had the center, you know, the five, the pivot, you know, that person, you stay beneath the basket, you grab the rebounds, you work with your back to the basket. You need to do this and that. And ever since, you know, basically Michael Jordan, young kids started watching a lot more basketball. They watch Market Jordan. They all want to be Michael Jordan. So when they're kid, even if you're very tall and people tell you, oh, you're going to be a five, you're going to be a pivot, you train or your jump shot, you dribble more. So your handling becomes better. You shoot well, but then you grow to be seven feet. But now you're seven feet and you become a Joel Embiid. So you shoot the three. You have a very, you have a very nice stroke. It's super gentle. Or Nikola Jokic, you pass like a guard, but you're, you're seven feet tall. So it's called positionless basketball, right? If you're LeBron James, you're like this behemoth, but you're one of the best passers the game has ever seen. It's positionless, right? And I think something similar is going to happen to human talent, meaning... I'm not a copywriter, but with ChatGPT, I can get my copy up to like maybe in 90, 85, right? I'm not a data analyst, right? But I'm smart and I can understand data. And with tools like Optimus, maybe I can get my analytic skills to like an eight. So now if you think about when you become positionless and you have a positionless CRM marketing team, how much time does it take you to produce a campaign? So instead of waiting for four or five different departments, now you can do it in, in maybe hours, days, instead of weeks or months. So the velocity becomes bigger and now you can really scale your personalization program. So it's personalization at scale. Some of it comes from technology like Optimove. Some of it comes from your talent becoming positionless and we help make marketers more positionless. So this is how I'm looking at 2020. That's a really insightful answer. I love this concept of being positionless and, and helping organizations and people within the organizations become positionless. And I mean, you spoke to the pain of organizations running and executing on, you know, retention-led campaigns. And there was a brief moment in time where I was responsible for retention marketing at Pinnacle Sports, which is a large operator. And, you know, I can, I can really empathize with the pain you described about having, you know, multiple departments coming together, cross-functional teams come together, the sheer exhaustion that we all experienced and felt at the end of the campaign. And it, and then the trouble with, you know, getting through a campaign is as soon as one is done, the next one starts, right? So it's a sort of like ongoing, continuous, infinite cycle. There's a lot of friction there. There's a lot of challenges there. The point you made around team members coming and going, that creates further challenges. So 
I, I can really speak to, I think, you know, the, the pain point that you've described there and this trend towards, um, you know, positionless organizations, quite a novel one. Obviously, technologies like Optimove and some of the underlying technologies like AI uh, help support that. But it definitely is something that I think a lot of people listening to this will resonate with. I wanted to stick quickly with retention marketing for a minute, because at least from a U.S. perspective, again, within the real money gaming industry, Penny, my observation has been, you know, through the first five-ish years post-PASPA, obviously a lot of the operators have leaned heavily on acquisition-led marketing, headlined by all of these crazy bonuses and, and offers. And, you know, that that's trending now, in my observation, again, more towards retention-led marketing. And I guess what I'd love to hear your commentary on is, is, you know, as you look at the U.S. markets, you know, what do you think it can learn from more mature regulated markets as it shifts from acquisition-led marketing to retention-led marketing? And I guess what does the next few years look like from a marketing perspective in the U.S.? Yeah, I think the, the U.S. is is fascinating. I'm, I'm not a huge, per se, legislation expert, or I just follow it from afar. But yeah, I guess at the beginning, America, like America, you know, it's got to start with the gold rush. Yes, that's in history. So it, and I think this is what you were describing, right? You see a lot of people hoping to do a lot of land grabbing before the right time. Some people did more of that. Some people did less of that, gaining market share so that if at one point in time, all states get legalized, more states would approve casino, then they would be there. Now, I think they're at the point of, you see a lot of small players actually pulling out and not, no longer staying. What I find pretty interesting in the U.S. is that it, it's pretty concentrated. So if you think about it, the market is probably even bigger than Europe, all of Europe, probably bigger than all of Europe. But at the same time, if you see the top players, they have huge concentration, right? So I think like four or five players maybe own 90% of the market, especially when it comes to sports. I guess it's also like that in, in other fields in the U.S., right? So in retail, right, you got, you know, Walmart and Target and, and Costco and, and folks like that, they probably... They have a pretty big market share and same with banking. And then you got your local heroes. So I think you're probably going to see the same in gaming. You'll have the huge betting companies and it's pretty, right? It's like the FanDuel bet MGM and DraftKings and Teasers and there's a few strong ESPN bets, probably going to be one of them. And BetFanatics, probably going to be one of them, depending how. And it's interesting that each one of them has got like their own secret sauce, right? So like they're coming at it, you know, BetFanatics from the Fanatics, from the apparel business. and the database that they have in BetMGM is from the database that they have from the loyalty program and FanDuel is from the database they have from the, from the fantasy sports. And like, you know, each business is going to come at it and ESPN bets going to come at it from, you know, the media angle. So it's, it's very interesting. I think it's just moving over to retention led marketing just because of people are sick of losing so much money and they now want to basically just, you know, run a healthy business. What can they learn from Europe? I guess they already are because a lot of them are intertwined with European partners. So if you think about it, Fandle is owned by Flutter, which is a huge European. So they have access to PokerStars and Skybet and Cisal and Tombola and all of those brands that they have in Europe and elsewhere. BetMGM is JV with Entain, which is European. A lot of acquisitions, right? So DraftKings acquired the sports platform from Europe. So... Everybody's kind of like in some kind of a partnership with a European arm as well. There's a lot of talent, intertwined talent, but America is going to be America. I think it's going to be different. The legislation is different to state by state. The expectation of how the product runs, Americans don't like the platform providers. They don't like to rely on, on third-party software vendors for the core thing, which is the casino software, right? The, the player account management. 
They have a lot of issues with different PAMs out there. It's either the PAMs completely change or, or, or they're going to build their own. So you see a lot of those types of trends happening. And, and we are just happy to be there and, you know, walk with, with the best of them. But it's very, it's very interesting. It changes every day. So it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a few more topics I want to try and, and get through here with the time we have left, Penny. So let's just go through this in a little bit of a rapid fire format here. One thing I, I want to touch upon here, again, for the benefit of folks listening and just for context, many of the people that listen to this podcast are other founders or entrepreneurs that are at earlier stages in their own journey. So I guess through that lens, one thing I'd love to just talk about briefly is B2B sales, right? And obviously Optimove as a B2B SaaS platform, you're out there providing this software and this solution to B2B customers. And you know, the sales cycle is notoriously challenging. It's long. You know, once you close a deal, then you're on an integration roadmap. And for companies at the earlier stage, right, like looking at this timeline, you know, there's sometimes an existential crisis because they don't even know if they have the capital to survive long enough to get that integration done and get to market, never mind revenue coming in to support the business, right? So I guess taking all that together, Penny, one thing I'd love to hear you comment on is some of your tips or perspective, perhaps, to share with other B2B software vendors in this space. Uh, especially ones that are earlier in their journey and, and helping them get to success with whatever it is they're doing. Wow, that's a lot to unpack. A few thoughts that I have from the beginning is it's really important that within the founding team, somebody is a really good seller. That's very important. For me, that was the, you know, I learned through Optimove that I can actually be pretty good at selling. I didn't know it before. So I was, you know, I was the guy that, you know, did the, the mathematical specs, but then I could speak about it and, and persuade people why it's important. So I think that's number one. That's just, you know, it's, it's a whole thing, right? It really changes as the company matures. But at the beginning, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, the art of persuasion. Obviously, if you have, you know, how good your product is, how good do you manage to change? You always need to kind of like learn. Stale cycles is an amazing vehicle to understand the reality, like how people perceive your product. So I would say if you have this mentality of every week, you got to release a new version. So your deck gets a little bit better. Two slides have nicer colors. One word that you use doesn't work, use another word. The way you approach the pitch is a little bit different. You actually improve your product. You know, maybe, maybe you didn't have that feature, now you do. All of those fail cycles that you have and you lose, those are lessons. Those are amazing lessons. And then the 10th company that you meet, you're peaking, right? At that time, you're this amazing product. And then you go back to the ones that you lost, right? So maybe you lost some you say, you call them six months later. Hey, I know it didn't work. Come check us out. Like we've done a lot of changes. We are a different company now. Our product is different. Come check us out. It's a marathon, you know, B2B sales, unless it's like product-led growth and something like that, and you just need to buy ads and, you know, if you have performance marketing that you optimize, that's a completely different beast. But if you need people to get persuaded and sign up a piece of paper, then it's a, it's a marathon, right? And you need to have memory in that marathon. You need to understand that you can build momentum. So I like, there's something that I heard from an investor in the past. He said to me, I never invest in a dot. I always invest in a line. What does that mean? I meet the founder several times over many years. So it's not like, okay, first meeting. So you meet the founder, hey, all oh, the founding team, what's happening with you guys? Oh, we want to do this and that. Then you meet them a year later. Yeah, we actually did this and that. Now we're here. So the investor's like, wait a second. Like now I have a line. I got two dots. Then you meet them again six months later. Oh, you guys are at revenue. Nice. Oh, you sold to that business. Let's talk. I want to invest. I think a sales cycle is pretty similar, right? You meet the company first. You meet the people there. 
You tell them about what you do. Awesome. Six months later, hey, this and that company just signed up. Awesome. Also, they eventually are going to buy you after you've invested and worked with them for a long period. And sometimes they may leave the company. So they landed another company, but they continue, right? From their perspective, hey, I've seen this company often, but they do something really cool. It didn't work out in my last company because the situation was like this and this and that. It was political, but now it can work. And then they bring you over. Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned the metaphor of investing in lines and not dots, right? It reminds me of a blog post I read, I think in like 2010 or 2011 by a venture capitalist based in Los Angeles. His name's Mark Suster. And he wrote this blog post called why I invest in lines and not dots. And he basically broke down the exact framework you just described there. That blog post really stuck with me, right? I mean, that was 12, 13 years ago. And I actually still send it out to, to teams at the earlier stage because they say, you know, oh, I had a call with an investor. I think he's going to close. And I, I said, I don't think that's true because that's just the first dot and you need to establish a line and explain that concept. It's well understood. And that equally applies to sales, as you say. And really, anytime you're trying to convince anybody to do anything, they're making a decision based on the line, not the dot. So I, I blabbering the point now, but it is such an important concept that I'd love to just reinforce uh, your point you're making there because it is such an important one that I think is often lost on entrepreneurs at the early stage of their journey. And most people will get discouraged. They say, like, I met them. They're never going to do it. It's against their philosophy. It's against their mindset. They actually have a homegrown system. We're done. Let's erase them from our CRM. No, 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 no. You're not done, right? Maybe you'll never sign them, but their perspective will change, right? Companies change over time. So you keep, you stay at it. And of course you think about, okay, what type of marketing I want to give them. So yeah, I have this monthly newsletter that I'm going to send. I'm going to keep them like very on the low burn. So they know about me. They read the momentum. It's very lightweight, you know, not a problem. Uh, you see them then at an event, right? So it's the courtship. It's not like, I would say like selling in B2B. It's not like Tinder. It's like couples therapy. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to use that one too. <laughs> this other topic I'm about to introduce is probably a podcast of its own, but just quickly to touch upon it as well. I mean, you alluded at the outset here, the fundraising journey that Optimove's been on. You've got a few investors on your cap table, but you've taken quite an interesting approach over the life of the business because I know bootstrapped it for, for a long, long time. And you actually very consciously avoided venture capital money. And I actually listened to another podcast you were on some time ago telling the story about actually turning down a term sheet in the earlier days of Optimove, which obviously is, is quite a contrarian move, right? And, and goes against, uh, I think, what most entrepreneurs would feel as being the right instinct. So just to quickly talk about, I guess, your perspective on fundraising at the earlier stage, bootstrapping versus raising money, and I guess maybe what you can share from your experience growing and scaling Optimove with the approach you've taken. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot about how your personality is wired, right? I think the world teaches us, like the vast majority of startups are being built in this form, which is kind of like guided by the VC mentality and guided by human nature, which is we are taught that this is essentially an extreme sports. <laughs> so it's very high risk, very high reward. You know, you do this thing at the last minute and you persuade this and that and you do this heroic thing to, to get your first investor give you a check of $4 million and then you go out and you work for nine months to prove that this thesis is correct. And, and if it's not, then you're effed. And if it is, then you get another $5 million. And, you know, it's like, and I have a lot of friends who are founders and I invest myself in some startups and I see it all the time. Number one is I think most people don't want to go through the hardship of bootstrapping. To me, it wasn't hard. To me, it was easier because to me, the most important thing that I always wanted to have is my freedom. I'm not going to jeopardize my baby being my company, right? I'm not going to jeopardize it at like, in, what, in nine months, if I can't do this and this and that, the whole thing's going to die. I mean, come on. 
for me, it was an insane thought. Like I could never go through with it. I would, I would be miserable in those nine months to a point that I could not sustain that type of existence. But for other people, what they want is because at the end of the day, when you don't do it, you got to go through a lot of years of, and for me, Optimum was 2012, but before Optimum, since 2009, I had a data mining agency. I worked with Israeli brands, provided them services, collected retainers, and it wasn't pretty, right? But I was super excited about it, but it wasn't, you know, in hindsight, I was, you know, I, I had to go through a lot of things, which would, you know, it's like this, like the Israeli cesspool of companies, which is not that pretty but it gave me what I needed to become a software company. Bottom line is I think people at the end of the day, what is very lonely to be an entrepreneur and you want some validation and to get to a successful business takes something like 10 years. Maybe some people do it in seven, I don't know, but to get to a point where your business is, when you build something meaningful, it's around 10 years. It's much easier after one year to get a check. Hey, they invested in me. They believe in me. Hey, grandma. Remember I told you I'm one of, I'm a special grandson. I was right. Look, you know, I got a $5 million check by dead investor. They love me. They think I'm doing something good. That validation is very important to most entrepreneurs. And it's really hard to live the alternative. To me, that was harder to do it like that. And then you say, okay, I got the 5 million. Let's hustle. We get through it. I think that's mostly what happens. And that's why you see what you see. And of course, sometimes, you know, one of those companies that gets the 5 million is the next Uber or Facebook or LinkedIn. Amazing, right? Sometimes that's the way the model works. But, you know, I think to your point and, you know, it's in your example with Optimove, right? I think there's also something to be said for, you know, the scrappiness and tenacity that one develops personally through bootstrapping rather than taking that money up front. I mean, it's always easy to spend somebody else's money not as easy to spend your own and particularly when that is in the form of, you know, blood, sweat and tears throughout the way. Right. So I think it does also help shape the entrepreneurial profile a little bit as well by taking that decision to bootstrap. Your reality is always very lucid. When you are bootstrapping, there's no, the reality with, with like when you're trying to please investors to give you more money, sometimes you're optimizing for alternative realities that are not necessarily connected to real life. When you bootstrap, you are insanely lucid. Like everything is crystal clear. Yeah, you just basically, you know, you got to follow the money. You got to go where the money is at. And, and if you're smart enough to also not jeopardize your identity, for example, you can start selling a ton of services, then you'll never be a software company, right? Or you can start committing all of your future roadmap in order to win deals. So, but then you become an IT bespoke development company and not actually, and not a product company. There's all sorts of bad revenue that people can take if they only bootstrap. But I think when many things fit, then you can do, you can, you know, you don't need a ton of money to succeed. Depends what you do. So the bootstrapping angle can be really interesting. And, and some really great companies do it like that. There's loads and loads of examples. All right. We're getting to the home stretch here, Penny. So I think the last thing I, I want to just ask you about is your vision for the future. You know, you've been at this journey now with Optimove for 10 plus years. What excites you, you know, what, what does the future look like? And I guess, you know, maybe to, to put it another way, where do you see Optimum in, in 10 years time from now? 10 years is, is really a lot. What excites me is basically, you know, the art of building a company. And what I really like is when we have a certain reality, that reality is, is challenging to us. Maybe it's because it's, it's because we face real problems that we need to solve or because we have an idea for, for something creative, something that can delight 
whether it's internal employees or customers or investors. So when I work with my team and we solve those problems and we implement the solution and then we reap the rewards and we see that it works, I think that's the most gratifying thing. And if you do that repeatedly, kind of like repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, you do that for many different angles, right? Sometimes it may be because, for example, this year, we rolled out values for the company. We rolled out the optimal values for the first time after like 11, 12 years, we got values that's an HR project, but it's insanely successful and it's super exciting and our employees love it. And I saw how it contributes to motivation. So that's not necessarily a tech development, but on another side, we have a really exciting partnership that we want to build a new product with a partner actually in the gaming space, which is really, so we're going to announce it probably at ICE. And that's also really exciting. So I like this process of figuring out how to get to a better reality with my team and managing kind of like the evolution process in Optimum. Like the problems always change and my role always changes, right? So I started out with myself and my partner. So two employees, I was employee number one and number two, that's it. As the company grows, kind of like the company demands more for me and I need to release new versions of myself, right? I need to become a different peony to meet the new scale or the new, like even the way I work with executive, with my executive team, right? In the past, it was like uh, Pini and the posse, you know, we're all younglings, nobody knows anything. All of a sudden, higher people are really experienced, right? They did a lot of stuff before. So the way you work with them, like all of those things excite me. Where we'll be in 10 years, I hope uh, that Optim will continue to thrive to be like one of the, one of the leaders in the category of personalized marketing and customer-led marketing and, you know, give like companies like, like Adobe and Salesforce a run for their money. And, you know, where I'm at at that stage, I hope it's beyond me specifically and that the entity called Optimove sustains and continues to grow beyond me. Well, I, I wish we had more time, but we are at our limit now. Uh, maybe we'll schedule a part two for the future. Let's not rule that out. But for now, Penny, really want to thank you for joining and, and sharing the Optimove story and, and your story with the audience here. Quick plug for anybody that wants to get in touch with you for any reason or your team or check out the product or platform. Can you quickly point them towards where they could do all of that? Yeah, so I would guess the, the easiest plug is just to go to our website, www.optimove.com or, you know, just email me, pini, uh, P-I-N-I underscore Y at optimove.com. And yeah, we can, we'll be able to route you to the right direction, but I'm always happy to, to speak to folks. I'm still passionate as I was in, in day one. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining. Wishing you and the team all the best for 2024 and look forward to continuing to follow the story and stay in touch. Appreciate you, Jesse. Thank you.